We've been discussing the first verse, and we come to the point in the verse where the Leela, that uh, the name Damodar arises out of, and uh, that the song is centered around, has um, come into the picture. The Lilas has three or four parts to it. So the first part is described here, the next verse, the second part, and the third part comes later on in the in the Astakam. And the fourth part is not uh, the aftermath is, is of it all is not not dealt with. So first part here, Yashoda Bio Yukalad Dhavamanam. We started to talk a little bit about this. We talked about what preceded the Damodar Leela, the mischief of Krishna, and um, the complaints of the neighboring ladies. Subsequently, Yashoda Mai, although in denial in public, in private, she chastised her husband, Nanda Maharaj, what kind of cowherd king are you that you can't even keep our son at home with sweet enough milk, so get some special cows from your herd, graze them on special grasses, and um, from their milk we should be able to prepare the kind of milk products that will be tasty enough to keep our mischievous son at home, Hmm? to make him behave. Hmm? And so this is what leads up to the Leela, and subsequently the, the fear that's mentioned here. There's a fear of, that Krishna um, is uh, expresses. There's also a fear of Dushoda, but let's talk a little bit further about the part of the Leela that uh, leads up to this uh, situation, extraordinary situation, in the midst of the really the, the high one of the high points of Vatsalya Rasa, this Bayankar fear manifest. It's a secondary rasa. These secondary rasas, they are very much like uh, Sanchari Bhavas or Bhavas that come and they're... Sanchari means like transient. They come and dominate for some time and then recede. The dominant emotion that defines a person in relation to Krishna as a friend, as a parent, as a lover and so forth is called the Stai Bhav. And Sanchari Bhavs come and go in the midst of that. But there are a few, about seven, Rupa Goswami has singled out Bhavas or emotions that have the power to, although transient, coming and going, if you will, have the power to, to repress the dominant emotion and have it recede to the background and, 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 
allow the uh, devotee to taste a secondary rasa. Hmm? So it's peculiar because typically the the sun cherry bobs don't have the power power to suppress a a a, a stai bhav, hmm? and they're temporary or they're transient. So it's transient, like the sun cherries, but has its power. So Krishna is overwhelmed with fear here in the midst of its vatsalya uh, or his parental. Uh, parental affection he's reciprocating with um, uh, in relation to Mother Yashoda. So he he remains the son of Yashoda and feels like that. In the context of that, this fear predominates <clears throat> for some time. So what's you know brought this about? That's of course uh, what uh, the discussion is with regard to where we are in the uh, in the Leela hmm, that the text the Asticum is. Uh, rising out of so as I as I mentioned the special cows, the special grasses, and the special milk, and the special milk is boiling on the stove and being prepared for Krishna. Hmm? Mother Yasoda was churning the butter. Krishna came in, and by his charm and his um, insistence for attention, his expressing hunger. She got him to stop the churning of the butter and to pick him up and allow him to suckle her her breasts. Hmm? Now, ordinarily, in the house of Mother Yasoda, there would be many assistants. She is the queen of the king of Vrindavan, and so the household was full of nursemaids and different type of assistants, and and so forth. Um, and uh, a, a, a busy and joyful place of of ecstasy and love for different types of devotees. But on this occasion, she is alone with Krishna, and the reason is this is happening on the Diwali, or as is coming up, the Govardhan Puja. So during the Govardhan Puja, then there's a big arrangement in the Braj, and for worshiping Indra hmm. annually, we should say. Govardhan Puja is coming later in the life of Krishna. This is earlier. Govardhan Leela comes at the age of seven. He's quite young now. He's in his Kumar Leela. Kumar Leela means from one to five, typically. And uh, this is a, the, the, the age that is an Udipana or a stimulus for, for Vatsalya Rasa. Hmm. In Poganda Leela, it's very much a stimulus for Sakirasa, and in Kishore Leela, his adolescence, very much a stimulus for conjugal love or romantic life, Madhurya Leela. So, Kumar Leela, his Govardhan Leela, is appearing, and it's the later part of his Poganda Leela, and just passing into the Kishore Leela. Although he's only seven there, he ages quickly. Mm-hmm. Krishna is one of those children who are mature for his age. So, well, typically, the Kumari would be one to five, and Pogun the five to ten, and Kishore ten to fifteen, and so forth. He passes through them more more quickly. He's he's mature for his age. So, uh, so at any rate, still now, what's happening at this time is the Indra Yagya is going on. 
not the Govardhan Puja, but the Indra Yagya, that in a few years Krishna complained about. And this has much to do with why he complained about it. Hmm? Because at this time, in his home, there was only Mother Yasoda and himself. And while he wanted to nurse and be fed, she was at the same time preparing milk to feed him from very special cows, grazed on very special grasses, and it was on the stove. And in order to tend to the milk, she was met with the dilemma of, shall I put him down and tend to the milk, or shall I let the milk overflow and and, and allow him to continue to suck my breast? Point being that there was no nursemaid to hand him to, or no, no nursemaid to say, please tend to the milk on the stove. Hmm? And so the reason for this and the trauma, that the psychological uh, trauma that's being described in these, these verses uh, very graphically, um, is it rests, you know, with, with Indra. Indra's, it's, <laughs> so this is kind of behind the scenes here as to uh, when Krishna became a little older and he started looking at this festival and he thought, you know, this, this is the guy who, you know, traumatized me in my youth. There I was, you know, s- sucking from my mother's breast and she put me down and, you know, and went into the next room. And the next thing, you know, of course, we had to get to that. What, what happened, it was a hugely traumatic um, experience. Mother chases him with stick, you know, so on and so forth, ties him up. And this is a huge event that... It culminates, of course, in the, in the f- felling of the Arjun trees, the extraordinary vision that the cowherd friends of Krishna, young, were there who, who saw it. Nobody else saw who came out of the trees and what that was about and so forth. But the crashing of these Arjun trees was very loud, and so people came from all over the place. Nanda Mars showed up, of course, and and there was you know his son tied up, <laughs> and the trees had fallen, and the likelihood that they would have fallen on him. Uh, was a consideration, and and meanwhile, by this time, we're getting to the end of it. Of course, Mother Yashoda, this is the aftermath, had run into a room and locked herself in there. Herself was weeping. What have I done? And what will people think? You know, and and then and, and Krishna was tenderly undone from the from the mortar. And what a horrifying thing! And what happened? Who tied him up? <laughs> Who did this? Where is Mother Yashoda? Hmm? And, of course, it was then time for him to suckle the breast again of Mother Yasoda. He said, no, no way. Hmm. He had to be passed on to Rohini, who then gradually was able to convince him to forgive his mother and so forth. Anyway, we have to get to that part. But <laughs> but point being, this is a hugely traumatic experience for a young child. Hmm. Big trees fell, the whole neighborhood knew about it. He was tied up. The mother chased him with a stick, and so on and so forth, and all because everybody's busy worshiping Indra, and this is how a guy who feels that everything should be centered on me <laughs> is react, reacting to Indra's need for attention. Mm-hmm. And so, when he became a little bit of age, uh, at seven, then he started to inquire, "What's this about, anyway? Who is the, what's all this commotion that's going on every year?" And uh, then his displeasure, if you will, for, for with with Indra that 
led to the beautiful Govardhan Leela and the um, and the Sharanagati is very beautifully exhibited um, amongst the Premikas. These Prem devotees with Prem, obviously they also have Sharanagati. So they all surrender. They all go pritve varanamtata. They all, this Govardhan Leela is sarvadharman pritvajamamekam sharanam. That's what it is. No other gods. I shall have no other gods before me. I think there's a statement like that in the Bible. Our God is a jealous God, they say sometimes in Christianity. I shall have no other God before me. No false gods and so forth. So Govardhan Leela is about that. It's about Ekanta Bhakti. It's about Sharanagati hmm? and how it's exhibited by the inhabitants of Vrindavan. The center which of Sharanagati is Gopritvevaranamtata. It's sixfold, but the Sarupalakshan, the primary characteristic of it is the sense of dependence upon Bhagavan. I'm dependent upon Krishna alone. Hmm? And so cultivating that spirit hmm, is sent to, to Sharanagati, and this is what they're doing, hmm? giving up the dependence upon Indra, who, who was thought for good reason. He gives the rain. From rain we get grasses. From grasses the cows are flourished. And our livelihood depends upon the cows and so on and so forth. But however well thought out <laughs> on their part, Krishna had another idea in mind, of course. And so the Govardhan Leela is the playing out of this um, idea that, in a sense, the Bhagavatam, that the Gita ends with and the Bhagavatam begins with. When the Gita says, Sarva Dharman Pritajamamekam Sharanam Braja, give up the Dharma means. Give up the worship of all the gods that are worshipped in Varnashram. Take shelter of me alone. Hmm? Give up the thought of mukti, puritya completely giving up everything else. And this is how the Bhagavatam begins. Dharma projita kaitavotra paramonian matsaranam satam. This book is about a dharma that dispenses with ordinary idea of dharma and moksha. Hmm? Dharma projita kaitavotra. Hmm? All types of cheating means a religious perspective in which we either desire to acquire through appeasing the gods or we desire to to acquire the world or get away from the world and its problems, moksha, both of which are thought and understandably so to be self-centered. They're worldly-centered, one wanting to acquire it, one wanting to get away from it. And bhakti is... Is not so. It's centered on Bhagawan, and the world comes into the picture secondarily and in an important way. And that's brought out here in the beginning of this leela when Mother Yashoda has the dilemma: What shall I do? Shall I put my son down and tend to the milk, or shall I let the milk boil over and tend to my son? And we might think, well, obviously, attend to your son. That's the important thing. Even if the milk boils over, it's Krishna in your hands, and he's hungry. And he's happily enjoying uh, your, your breast milk, so obviously there's, uh, there's not much choice in the matter. So some milk boils over on the surface. So what is it, a little special? They can always gather more milk and so forth. So we might think that would be her conclusion, but it wasn't. Hmm? So it's an important point, her decision. And it speaks of how the devotee is kind of oriented and how the world is seen from the vantage point of the devotee, who in this case is Mother Soda, is fully absorbed in the idea that Krishna is uh, my son, 
And everything in relation to me is all seen in relation to him. So that which is, there is love of Krishna, and then there is love of that which is dear to Krishna. You know, Devi, Parvati, she asked her husband, Mahadev Shiva, what is the best kind of worship? She was a worshiper of Shiva. Hmm? And Shiva said, Aradhananam Sarvesham, Vishnu Aradhanam Param. Of all types of Aradhana, worship, the worship of Vishnu is Param. That is the best. So Devi heard this, but her heart sunk a little bit because she's worshiping Shiva. And she was saying the best worship is the worship of Vishnu. So understanding her, her concern, hmm? as a sensitive person that he is, Shiva, he said, Radhanam Savisham, Vishnu Aranam Param, Tasmat, however, Tasmat Prataram Devi, Tadiyanam Samarshanam. However, my dear Devi, hmm? that said, higher than the worship of Vishnu is the worship of that which is dear to Vishnu. Tadiya, Tadiya Seva. If something is dear to Krishna, then paying, paying attention to that takes precedence over paying attention to Krishna. Hmm? So the Vaishnav Seva, the Tulsi Seva. In this case, we saw the milk all in relation to the service of Krishna and and she felt that her own milk wasn't doing the job of keeping him at home and having the people criticize him in the neighborhood and so on and so forth. And she couldn't tolerate that for her son. So the special milk to free him from possibly getting a bad reputation and so on and so forth, she put the son down, her son down, and tended to the milk. Tadiyaseva. This is a very um, an interesting and important point, a little hard to grasp. That's why it's said that the neophyte devotee in Bhagavatam is defined as he or she who uh, worships the deity but does not have a worshipable attitude toward the Vaishnav. Now, it's something we can say and we can nod our heads, but you think about it. <laughs> it's... Uh, and, 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 and you, so you, you have the classical, the guy, someone's giving the Bhagavatam class, a sadhu, some man walks in, steps over people, gets to the front of the altar, ignoring the class, makes a prayer, hmm, offers a, a rupee into the box, praying for a good son, and walks out. And so he's identified the Godhead with the deity, but he has no regard for the Vaishnava. Now, why is he worshipping the deity? Why do we bow our head before the deity? Why do we do that? Hmm? Right, because of some devotee, Vaishnava, told us that's God. This is how you react, respond to him here. So the question then is, so where is Krishna? Hmm? When Pujapada Sridharmarsh uh, came to the Moth in, in Calcutta, or it was a rented house at that time. Um, and they, the devotees were preaching to him. He, um, he asked the question that, um, that you have the deity here, hmm, and then your Guru Maharaj is up there. 
What did he say? Why isn't he here? Also, on, on the altar or something like that. Uh, now, forgive me, I can't quite remember the, the, the story, but he, the point he was making is that he learned at the point about Tadiya Seva, hmm? that, uh, that to worship Gurudev, even though he's over here, as we give more attention there even than to the altar, something to that effect. So, forgive me, I've short-circuited on that story, but, <laughs> but, um, but it's a, it's a very, uh, important point. It's very practical, as I've just explained, without the reason we bow down before the deity, because some devotee has told us, so, or the words of the scripture, the Puranas, and so forth, which are coming through the devotees, even the Upanishads, the, the unauthored sounds are nonetheless brought into, uh, into print, if you will, hmm, by different sages and so forth who heard them in their, in their samadhi, in their meditation, and so forth. So, they are the active agents of divinity. Hmm? In that sense, in that sense, they are more important to us than the scripture. And of course, they don't tell us something that's not in the scripture. They tell us what's in the scripture that we can't find on our own, that we don't have the eyes to see. So they, they, they are subordinate to the scripture in that way, but they're also more important in the scripture in that sense as well. So at any rate, we learn from them to bow before the deity and therefore we do. But then the fact that to trace that out and make that connection, so to speak, this is the differentiation that the Bhagavatam makes between the neophyte devotee and the intermediate devotee. The intermediate devotee is characterized by, um, among other things, understanding the position of the Vaishnava and seeking to uh, the, the, the company of like-minded uh, Vaishnavas and senior Vaishnavas to serve and, and so on and so forth. Hmm? Uh, so it's a, it's an important point and uh, it's not so easy to uh, to grasp. And then along with that we have this very strong um, emphasis on not offending the Vaishnavas. It's not meant to make us neurotic and, you know, be, walk on eggshells around um, one another or even our um, those who are senior to us, but um, but the, the Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi you know, coined the phrase the Brihat Murdanga for the printing press. He coined another phrase, the Jivanta Murdanga, the living Murdanga, was his were those who were his sannyasis who were traveling and preaching and explaining the teaching and so forth. So the living the living drums. Hmm? So Vaishnava Seva is a is a form of Tadiya Seva, a prominent form of it. Hmm? And, as I say, the teaching is it takes precedence over service to Krishna. Probably put it in a simple way, if you love me, love my dog, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very practical that um, if you want to get the attention of a powerful person, there's an easy way to do that. If you can make a connection with something or someone who is dear to him, where he is, in which he, where, those who are dear to him, he's residing in them, right? He, they have him captured. They have his attention. He may be even attentive to some other duty, but, but actually he's there. And if he's, he might be at work, but thinking of his wife or thinking of his kids, for example. And if something should come up on the computer screen at work, 
that reminds him of his daughter and immediately he's there. So he's there all the time. So a little stimulus for it, we'll, we'll, we'll take him there. So if we can find out something that or someone, meet someone that is dear to a person who is maybe otherwise inaccessible to us, very readily we can get that person's attention. Hmm? And um, it's also, it has something to do with the kind of the attitude of, of bhakti by which we get Krishna's attention, just to go there for a moment. You know, man could be the king in a monarchy, riding off on his horse to go to, to battle, and his daughter says, I want to I go. I want to ride the horse. You know, it's time to go to the battle. She, she can't come. Hmm? But she's just pulling on his boot and insistence and, and in her charm, if you will, of dependence and, uh, and, 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 and so forth. He dismounts from the horse and gets down on his hands and knees and becomes a horse. Get on my back, okay, I'll take you around, and then I'll go to war, something like that. So, the, this is central to the story. How the idea that Krishna is the son of Yashoda is, is the power of her, her bhakti, which is, which is, uh, it's not a, there's a, there's an effort in bhakti, but it's an effort that's very different in yoga or gyan. It's an effort to get grace, an effort to please, to, you find out things that are pleasing to him, and you do those things. Like I said, the girl shows up at the bus stop wearing a blue dress, a red dress, because she knows Bob likes red dresses. This is when I was a kid, you know, something like that. So that's that's an effort that she makes, but you see it's kind of like an effortless effort in a sense. It's an effort to 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 to, to, to get the attention. Hmm? Because then he can draw me up. He has that, that power. Hmm? So, those that are most dear to him, hmm, then they take precedence with regard to service over him. This is the idea. So she attended to the milk on the stove, to Diaseba. And, of course, outwardly, ostensibly, he was not pleased with that, hmm? which then causes the whole Leela to unfold, and it's said here that what it's covering a lot of ground here in a few words. He goes and he uh, stands up upon the mortar where her mother was churning and stopped her from that by his insistence of being hungry and wanting to nurse, and now she's gone, so he stands up on that and he breaks the butter pot, makes a hole in it. Yogurt comes out, and and uh, there he is making a mess and feeding to the monkeys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yogurt, right? which is a valuable commodity for the cowherds, and uh, so he's distributing it widely to the monkeys and acting as if he's a monkey himself, practically. And this she comes upon this scene, seeing the broken pot, his footprints in the, in the, in the milk. On the, in, in the yogurt on the floor and so on and so forth and now she as, as is said in brief here she apprehends him from uh, behind right paramishtam atyan tato drutyagopya so the uh, 
it's, it's significant in one sense that he she captures him uh, from behind. Hmm? Everyone else is trying to approach him directly, and he is running away from her, and still she can catch him. This is something to say about the power of bhakti. Just like we hear at times that Radha and the gopis, they decide to stop thinking of Krishna. We're going to stop thinking of this guy. It's just too much, right? We're going to make an effort to take our minds off of Krishna. Meanwhile, the yogis are making the effort to put Krishna on their minds. This is the difference between the power of bhakti and the power of yoga, for example, in comparison. This is how the Bhagavatam speaks about the different paths and makes a comparison in, in beautiful poetry, right? They're trying not to think of Krishna. Hmm. They can't get their minds off of Krishna, even though they make a concerted effort to do so. And the yogi is making a concerted mechanical effort by controlling the breath. And, you know, you hear these things sometimes, how will I control my mind? And, well, you know, there's the mechanical method. You sit, you do pranayama first before your japa, sit in one place, secluded, Turn the lights down low, you know, lock the door, blind yourself with a blindfold. There's many mechanical methods that may be useful to one extent or another, but really the mind goes wherever the heart goes. So if you chant from the heart, have you prayerfully, hmm, then the, your mind will be there automatically. And that's what the chanting is all about. It's not about counting, it's not a mechanical process like yoga where you do a certain thing mechanically and you get a result back. It's entirely an exercise of the heart. There may be some few things you, that might be recommended here and there, but the central idea of bhakti is the giving of oneself. Hmm? That's the difference between karma yoga and jnana yoga. In karma yoga we give the thing, the fruits of our action. In bhakti we give ourself and do the things that constitute bhakti, hearing and chanting about Krishna, serving him in different ways, and so on and so forth. So it's uh, yoga, and it's and it's kind of not a yoga. Hmm? It's a use of the head like the jnanis do, but for the purpose of softening the heart, which is the medium by which we can we can make a, a, the connection with Krishna, like Mother Yasoda, who again, later on in the chapter, it said, Brahma can't do it, Shiva can't do it. Lakshmi can't even get included in, in this picture. Yogis cannot see, this is the other implication of the word gopia. Gopia refers to her, but gopia also, gop means hidden, secret. Hmm. So the whole gopi lilas is of Gokul, which is the center of the whole lila. It's a secret affair. It can't be seen by the yogis in their meditation who are trying to go beyond the world and see the, see within all the possibilities. It will never come in there. The vision, this beautiful sight of Malayasoda apprehending Krishna from behind, hmm, who's running in fear of her, hmm, and who is running after him out of fear. She has a, She's experiencing fear because she's afraid that, uh-oh, I've chastised. I'm. I'm. I've, I'm upset with him. He knows it, and now he's taken off, and he may run away, and he may not come back. I've got to catch him. Hmm? It looks like she's chasing him to chastise him. Ostensibly, that's the case. 
but underlying that is her own apprehensions that, oh, he's, he's displayed with me, he might run away and not come back. What will become of me then? I've got to catch him, tie him up, keep him here. Hmm? And of course, uh, he can sense it <laughs> to uh, some extent. And, uh, and, and as the text goes on, and we come to the second part here where he's actually apprehended and a beautiful picture is given. Rudantam uhu netrayugmam rajantam karumbuja yugmena satan kanetram so he sees the stick carried by his mother. Jiva Goswami has the stick underneath her sari. But still he can see, he can see she's got something in her hand there. She's after me. So he's running. And the point is, you know, Krishna, who can run faster than Krishna? Right? I mean... Uh, he's uh, Upanishad, I think, describing him faster than than the mind. He's everywhere at once. So how can you possibly catch up with him if he if he doesn't doesn't want you to? Of course, he ultimately al- al- allows himself to be apprehended, in a sense. But it is the very power of bhakti hmm, that um, that ties him, not not the rope and. His nature is that he's controlled by bhakti, so he can't really not be caught. We could say he allows himself to be caught. He allows, he, he sees her effort, and having seen her effort, he gives her the grace and makes it possible, but he's, it's not possible for him to do otherwise, hmm? such as the power of bhakti. So a beautiful scene here of him rubbing his eyes with his hands and crying. Now he's been caught from behind. He knows she's got the stick there and he's afraid he's going to get a beating, get a spanking now. So he's crying and crying again, again and again, and rubbing his eyes and um, what do they call it? Kajol is making it, mm, tears, black tears coming down his eyes. Uh, the beautiful picture is, uh, is, uh, is painted here by Satyabhata Muni. And Krishna is, in one sense, pretending hmm, to be upset hmm, so that he won't get chastised. He's trying to mitigate the possibility of, of being chastised. And I'm already, you know, lamenting, I'm sorry, uh, uh, and, and so forth. This is, is, is one way of um, understanding it. And the other way, of course, is that he's actually... Hmm, Really afraid. <laughs> he really is afraid. It's possible. It's such a. This is the Krishna whose whose Godhead is is forgotten about. Again, this is a position of knowing that transcends omniscience. It's a kind of a divine unknowing. Hmm? The value of knowing is is the extent to which it informs action, by which we become happy. Hmm? So here, there's a kind of unknowing. That enables him to interact, inter- interact with his devotees in intimacy, and which gives him the most pleasure. Hmm? And so it's a, therefore bhakti, and this type of bhakti, it is the highest kind of knowing, as the Gita says, Rajavidya, Rajaguyam. Bhakti is the is the the end of knowing at the same time, even though uh, the the position of Krishna in relation to bhakti in Vrindavan 
is one of apparent unknowing, as is that of the devotee. Krishna doesn't know that he's God all the time, and the devotees don't know all the time. Sometimes they know, but it's just like an extra feature. Hmm. It's like if your son becomes the president, and he calls you out on the stage, I'd like to thank my mother also, and she runs out and says, Hillary, I love you. Mom, I'm the president now, you know. Uh, it's a little embarrassing, but she sees, yeah, yeah, that's cool too, but, you know, it's you. <laughs> so the, the, it, the, the idea that, that, uh, that, that uh, she's the son or, or daughter remains um, prominent in the Braj Lila. So the godhood of Krishna is, is at best some secondary thing. When his Aishvarya or godliness is shown in some Lila in the Braj, it doesn't interfere with the sentiments that cause them to think of him as a friend or a, a, as a lover, as it does, for example, outside of Vrindavan. When, when Arjuna saw the universal form, his Sakyarasa receded to the background, he said, oh my God, <laughs> I sat on the same bed with you, I called you, hey, hey Saki, hey, hey Krishna, hey Yadaveti, I, call, I spoke with you, I addressed you by names that the meaning of which is sometimes questionable, sometimes his coward friends will call him names that you'll think, oh my God, how could they call him that name? Hmm? I won't mention some of them, but... Uh, a few of them are mentioned by Arjuna. He says, I, I, you're God, I offended you. So we find his, his Sakyabab is receding to the background in the face of the Aishvarya or the majesty of Krishna in the 11th chapter showing the whole universe inside of him. And he's saying, oh my God. But this, there is more Aishvarya shown in Vrindavan than anywhere else. Perhaps the greatest example is in the... Brahma-vimohan Leela. Because in the Brahma-vimohan Leela, where Krishna, um, where Brahma steals the coward bo boys and calves and so forth, ultimately Krishna shows that while you, Brahma, are the unborn child of Narayan, hmm, coming from the lotus, from his, the umbilical lotus, coming from his navel, <laughs> that uh, that, 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 that see me from me innumerable Narayans are taken from, from the Narayan whom universes come from his body so many and in each universe there's another form of Narayan and the Brahma is born and so forth well well for me from me Narayans are coming millions of Narayans and they're making millions of universes and, and making millions of Garbhodakshaya Vishnus from whom millions of Brahmas are coming from. It's super extraordinary. Um, this is the Leela in the Bhagavatam that in the narrative form hmm, plays out the verse that is the password to understanding the whole tattva of the Bhagavatam. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, that Krishna is the source of, of all forms of divinity. Hmm? A beautiful Leela. So this occurred in Vrindavan. So my point is that the majesty, the Aishvarya, Vrindavan is the Madhurya Leela, sweetness of Krishna. But it's not that his Aishvarya doesn't manifest there. It manifests more there than anywhere else. But the beautiful thing is how it affects the love of the devotees. It doesn't affect the love of the devotees in such a way as to interfere with it. 
it's subjugated by that love as some secondary quality or well, people say that he's God, so I guess he could do those things. Anyway, um, he's lifting the Govardhan Hill, but as far as I can see, he needs some help here. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty extraordinary form of Aishvarya, and everybody's seeing it. They heard stories he killed Putana, or he killed this one, uh, Bakasur, uh, uh, Keshi, and so on and so forth. But here in the Govardhan Leela, for example, everybody in Vrindavan is seeing it. He's lifting the whole hill, right? Everyone is seeing hmm? And, and so they're seeing the opulence, and the famous picture, of course, is, is his friends are helping him hold it up. <coughs> right? That, that's the, what's the really beautiful thing about the whole Govardhan. You can draw many points of tattva and so but this is the most beautiful thing. Hmm? So it can interfere with their love, such as the power of the brudge. Love, which is turning him into the friend, turning him into the child. And in every sense of the term, he really is. And here, all these childhood-like activities and symptoms, if you ever had a child who was mischievous and then, you know, knew he was going to get chastised, and then he started crying big crocodile tears, or, you know, you can, you can, you can relate to it. It can, it can touch your heart and you can bond with Krishna is the point here. Hmm? So, uh, uh, such stories have great power. It's a very powerful kind of of yoga. You know, all the types of yoga, uh, jnana yoga, karma yoga, uh, uh, astanga yoga, are all about shutting down the emotional life, really, of a person, pointing out its illusory nature and how it's like ups and downs of waves in the ocean and so on and so forth, and more or less telling us that which we feel and think and experience is the best thing in life, our emotional life uh, is, is, is illusory. So we're supposed to forego that and, and come to some kind of stillness. It, it sounds good, you can reason about it, but bhakti comes full circle, right? And points to the, the, you know, in yoga, yoga, what is it? Chitta vritti nirodha. And the sutras say, make the chitta free of any vrittis, like waves in the ocean of your organ of perception, the chitta. The chitta perceives images of the world, reflect on it, and so forth. So to clear it entirely and make it like a pond that's just peaceful. Hmm? Previously, there were some kids there, they were throwing stones and it was noisy. And ah, Then they went away and it all calmed down and you can just sit there and meditate and peaceful on it, looking at the placid pond. This idea of yoga. But bhakti, the idea is to throw stones back mm-hmm. into the pond. How many? A million and eight stones, all in the same place. Hmm? And then you get these beautiful concentric ripples that make the peaceful pond a, a beautiful pond. It has movement and charm and so forth. Hmm? So peace and love, we need both uh, something like that. Right? Hmm? So it's to bring the bhakti vritti on the mind. Hmm? So bhakti vritti is otherworldly. This Rup Shakti Sudashatma Visheshatma Premasuryam Susamya Bhakti. It comes in, it takes over the antakarm, the subtle body of the devotee, and causes that devotee 
for example, like Prabhupada, to preach in a certain way, in a certain time, in certain circumstances, to be effective. Another devotee to move in another way, a different time, a different circumstance, and so forth. Hmm? And, of course, to love Krishna in a particular way. So it's very positive. It's very different than all the other forms that are of, of yoga that are ascending, if you will, to use Prabhupada's term. It's descending. So to simply kind of invite this bhakti to come in, to, to position yourself in such a way as to draw the sympathy of the sarup shakti. Hmm? Again, um, if you become dear to Krishna's devotee, then Krishna's attention goes to you. If a devotee thinks dearly of you, hmm, by love psychology, Krishna will will think dearly about that person. Oh, that person's not even my devotee, but he likes my devotee. Okay. And I like him too. This is Krishna. I mean, it's the full face of love. It's not this just godly love, right? This is really like unbiased, fair, just. That's the Paramatma. He's fair, defers to karma. He did it. What can be done? Hmm? Give him his due. You know, let the material nature do the job. <laughs> Krishna is is in the Gita. What is the statement in the Gita? Hmm. He says, um, hmm. Krishna says, I'm fair, I'm, I'm, I'm unbiased to everyone. Samoham sarvabhuteshu. Not Samoham Samoham sarvabhuteshu. I am equal to everybody. Samo, aham, samo, sarveshu. Sarveshu, everybody, samo, aham. I, sama, I, aham, am sama, equal. I am equal to everyone. Samoham sarvabhuteshu. And he's speaking in the first two lines of this verse. Forgive me for not remembering the other three, but Karnamrit is trying to look it up. And in the second two lines of the verse, he says, but... Yeah, but those who worship me, then I'm biased towards them, he says. There's a beautiful section in, in the, in the uh, sutras of Vyas. The question comes in the... Um, must be the second adhyay, the second chapter. Is God partial? Why does the question come? Because we see in the world there is inequality. Proverbial, you know, someone is born with a proverbial silver spoon in their mouth and someone else is, 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 is not. So there's inequality in the world. If God is behind the world, then God must be partial. This is the question. So the sutras say no. God is not partial. Hmm? And the, the differentiation we see, the gradation we see, is due to karma, not due to God. You input the coin in the machine of material nature and you're going to get you know, the corresponding result. This is karma. You do something, you get a result. Bhakti is not like that. The result might come, it might not come. Hmm? So... Then the question from the in the sutra says, "Well, okay, but what about at the beginning of karma? Then God must have started some out on one foot, some out on the other foot." And the sutra say there is no beginning to karma. Next question it says there is no there is no beginning to karma. And we've talked about this before. Anadi karma. There's no beginning to the world. There's no beginning to karma. Hmm? It doesn't. I know it doesn't quite fit between ears, but 
This is what the scripture says. And then another adhikaram, another topic is started, related to the previous topic, but another topic. What is that? The topic about the partiality of God. We just explained he's impartial. Hmm? And the differentiation is due to adrista, fate, to karma. But there are two influences in the world, as I said the other night, karma and bhakti. Hmm? So if you have the fate, the fortune, the good luck, pramanda brahmite kon, bhagyavanjib, guru krishna prasadipai, bhakti latabija. If you're lucky, hmm? what's the other word? Nice word? Um, Yadrichaya. It is said about Sukadev. Yadrichaya. He appeared on the scene. Yadrichaya. For no, for no cause. He's, it means, causeless mercy means there's someone moving in the world not under the law of cause and effect, karma. Who is that? Mahatmanastumamparta daivim prakritim ashrita. They are, Krishna says, Mahatmas. And he says this in the Bhag, in the Gita, ninth chapter, differentiating the Mahatmas from other types of spiritual people, if you study the text. There's this one, there's this one, and then there are the Mahatmas. Mahatma. They, their souls are great. Hmm? What makes their soul great or big? Because they're givers. Hmm? They're lovers. The more we give, the bigger we, we become. The, the, the self is so, cut, so to speak, expands by giving and contracts by taking. Hmm? So he says, Mahatmanastumam Partha. O Partha, a very affectionate name he invokes for Arjun. There are great souls in this world and Daivim Prakritimash, they're moving under a different energy. That means under the influence of Bhakti. If we come in touch with them, then another kind of fate, right? Another good, a good fortune, good luck. It's not ca- coming within cause and effect. It's beyond cause and effect, therefore it's causeless. Bhakti does what she wants whenever she wants. Nothing causes bhakti. If anything could cause bhakti, then it would be superior to bhakti. Indeed, bhakti causes Krishna to come wherever she goes. If she goes to someone, Krishna cannot stay away from that place. Hmm? Wherever there is bhakti, how can you have bhakti without Krishna? Therefore, that's why we know that Vrindavan, for example, the Vrindavan Leela is the fullest form of the Leela. Hmm? Because the measure of the bhakti is such. We, that's the whole story of the Bhagavatam. Why, why Krishna leaves Vrindavan and goes to Mathura and Dwarka? There's so many reasons. But the reason is to showcase the love for us of the inhabitants of Vrindavan. That's what the author of the Bhagavatam is trying to tell us. Hmm? And, and so Krishna's in Dwarka, physically, so to speak, but while he's physically in Dwarka and apparently absent in Vrindavan, he's actually more present in Vrindavan because of the measure of the love there. The whole place became suspended, its animation suspended upon the departure of Krishna. You don't find that in Dwarka. He, you know, he does depart. He goes back to Mathura. He kills, what is his name? Hmm? Dantavakra and so forth. They don't want him to go, but operations still go on. <laughs> In Vrindavan, everything's suspended. Nanda and Yasoda get going to catatonic state and so forth, and uh, they all become mad. Hmm? So the point is that 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 the measure of the intensity of the love is so great that how can you have love of Krishna if there's no Krishna? Hmm? He is 
he corresponds with it. He's invisible just for the purpose of showing the love, but he's there. Hmm? So he's, so, when, as I say, the sutra goes on to say, well, he's impartial, but, but another subject, what he's partial to is devotees. Now, while impartiality was, a, was, a, was an ornament, impartiality was a fault in relation to the world and karma, partiality in relation to the devotee, that is an ornament. Hmm? That, that, is, that was what makes Krishna lovable, hmm? because he's like that. Hmm? He's susceptible to the to the affections of his devotee. They approach him in a certain way, exclusively, dependent upon him in every way, loving him, and at the cost of, uh, of anything, everything else, giving everything to him. So he is purchased by them. Hmm? And this is this this is another thing. That is another thing. There's an otherworldly type of um, partiality. So in the verse from the Gita. Savrahum Savabhuteshu, he say, this is this is the Paramatma speaking. And then Bhagavan is speaking in the second two lines where he says, But I'm partial to my devotees. I'm impartial, but I'm partial to my devotees. Hmm? This is Bhagavan. And that partiality is making him move and Leela, the Paramatma, what are his Leelas? Hmm? Right? He's the witness. That's all. Hmm? So the Leela is making the the bhakti is making making the spiritual world go round, right? This whole that's what this is about. This second verse ends Stitagraba Damadaram Bhakti Bhadam. Bhakti Bhadam means Bhakta Bhatsalya. Hmm? This is his quality. Of all the qualities of Krishna, this is the most important quality. This is what makes him worshipable by the devotees because he he's so disposed like this. He has, in other words, a weak spot. Krishna, <laughs> he's God, but he has a weak spot. He has, there is an Achilles heel to the Godhead. Hmm? And this is what the Goswamis are teaching. What is the Achilles? You want, you want to capture him? We're going to tell you, there's one place you can press and the whole body will be controlled. Something like that. <laughs> Completely captivated. Hmm? And there are people who are showing this. We should follow, as I said last night, in the wake of their love. Follow their uh, example. So in this way, these texts are talking about something about this idea of capturing him, conquering him. One of the qualities of bhakti is that in prem, when it reaches the state of prem, it has the ability to mm, capture Krishna, to overwhelm Krishna. Indeed, Krishna is the absolute overwhelmed by bhakti. Hmm? And the power of that bhakti is such that it cannot be interrupted as I say, even with the greatest display of Aishvarya and opulence and so on and so forth, uh, uh, this is this is what, the, what the, the text here and of course Bhagavatam and our Goswamis are trying to showcase. So, we stop there and leave a little time for question. Any question? There's a whole other philosophical point here we didn't get to. We'll get to that in the next discussion. The tying of the rope. What is the significance? Uh, and and the nature of Krishna's form being as it is all pervasive. But are there any questions? Divine Grace, I have a question. You're talking about uh, Mother Jasoda chasing Krishna and ultimately Krishna allowing himself to be captured. Mm. And 
what happens is, my understanding is that the devotee is captured by the love for Krishna, and Krishna is captured by the love of the devotee. And in that, um, it seems as if the devotee loses their free will to the, to the love of Krishna, to the pastime. Mm-hmm. There's some transition there. Can you explain that transition? Yeah, it's just the opposite, actually, in, in a sense that the... Um, the jiva obviously has will, agency, mm-hmm. okay? And um, if it didn't have agency, in other words, if it was not an agent of action, how we experience life is that we have a will, a desire, it arises, you know, up here or here in our heart, something, you know, uh, to, to try to talk about it. Um, and And then we with our the instruments of our hands and legs and body we carry it out right that's how we experience life that we have will and desire and actions follow that desire so there's a causation in the world from up to down now in modern scientific community there's a whole question about that and 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 there's the dominant thinking is that there is no such thing as will there is no such thing as an atma a self there's only a brain functioning, hmm? and there's an illusion that there's a self, and there's downward causality, and there's only downward. It's all there is. It's only the physical. That's the prominent or dom- dominant idea in modern science. Um, it's very counterintuitive, obviously. It's not how we experience life to be, um, but they can't locate. But they can't they, they can't understand how there could be a self or even a mind that's different from a brain because they can't find it they can't measure it and they're thinking everything should be able to be to be measured right and brought on to the it's like we've understood how nature works they think in so many ways it has major forces electromagnetism gravity strong and weak nuclear forces We've got all this applied science, that we, so we've done the math, we know it works, and we get these results and so forth. And there's no place, this is a Newtonian perspective, of course, for any kind of will outside of the system of material nature. Um, and so in that perspective, consciousness kind of drifted away and wasn't, wasn't a topic. When you have the quantum perspective, as you said the other day, the observation of being a factor comes into play and, and how to, and maybe there's some randomness that, how to figure that out, and uh, and so forth. So, at any rate, there's a counterintuitive, dominant or predominant idea in the scientific community that there is no such thing as will. And we say, of course, there is, and we say that the mind is a subtle form of matter. It runs under, operates under some different laws, perhaps in the gross matter. Consciousness reflects on it. It takes on the consciousness-like quality, um, and then it's the medium through which gross matter is communicated with by that still atma and so on and so forth and of course we give a means to realize this and of course the idea that the mind is the brain or that the there is no soul or so far from being proved that the scientifically that the what would you call it the explanation gap hmm? Is as wide as the Grand Canyon, you know. I mean, it just. And so, what happens? It has been happening in modern science is the idea of what's the physical is kind of growing, 
it's kind of growing to try to now even panpsychism is is an idea that's under consideration a decade ago would have thought you were crazy panpsychism mean the idea that of course that we embrace a form of it that consciousness is everywhere it's it's an ontological reality and it underlies everything and so forth so at any rate we are of the opinion according to the vedanta that there is an atma and the atma has will. It's an agent of action. If it were not an agent of action, all the scriptures would have no meaning because they tell us, choose this, don't choose that. Do this, don't do that. They ask us to exercise our will in relation to the scriptures' advice. Right? If we were not units of agents of action, it would have no meaning. And so, and that's the problem with materialism, of course. Life has no meaning, has no value. The values we only make up we make up our values, and then those who make up their values and are atheists complain about religious people because they say they've made up their values. <laughs> That's what everybody's doing in materialism, so don't complain. But, but in material life, hmm, to get to your question, um, we are um, we are agents of action. Nature is also an agent agent of action. And the Godhead is an agent of action. So um, we have will, but in the context of a larger will. So the classic example is perhaps the farmer grows, wants to grow wheat, so he puts out seeds. Hmm? So he has exercised his will. But if it doesn't rain, they're not going to grow. So his will is exercised, but it depends on an overarching will in order for it to happen or not happen. His overarching will is such a sum called whatever he wants happens. Whatever we want may not happen or it may not happen, hmm? depending on the overarching will. But we have will. Hmm? And now, when we become, when, when amukta, then one's will becomes satya sankalpa. The point is this, like Bhagwan's. Hmm? Point is this: under the influence of material nature, we have some some choice. Maybe you know you could look at the material world as potentialities, and then or questions, and then will functions, and 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 the, those potentialities become actualities, and and and, and, and so forth. Um, so somewhere like the the, the 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 jiva is a witness, and it has some willing in relation to nature. So, um, now, that said, once it wills in a particular way in relation to nature, then nature's going to react in a certain way, and for the most part, those wills are going to be reinforced. There's a reinforcing of the will, we call samskaras, that that become very strong, so it's difficult then for people sometimes to exercise their will, and they start to act more or less robotically, under the influence of previous actions that they're now predisposed towards. So, you know, someone's an alcoholic, it's difficult for them to give it up, and they have a scar for it. Still, you can bring them into good counseling and help them, and it's possible to get them to exercise their will. But um, the point being that the more we exercise will in relation to material nature, the more we become under the influence of material nature, and we begin to function in relation to the samskaras, the tendencies that are coming from material nature from previous actions. 
So you kind of, kind of more. There's a more of a, of a losing of the will in relation to material nature hmm, than there is in relation to the sarup shakti or the internal energy of Krishna. When we come under the influence of bhakti, it's not that we lose our will. When we come under the influence of bhakti, we are we will in relation to the environment. You can only will or desire in relation to an environment that's presented to you. So the material environment presents certain opportunities, we will in relation to it. The spiritual environment presents certain possibilities and we will in relation to it. But when we will in relation to the spiritual possibilities or under the influence of the spiritual environment, bhakti, then all those things come true. Hmm? Because the whole Swarup Shakti is moving only for the satisfaction of Bhagawan. Hmm? And everybody under the influence, all their desires, they have desires, but in the larger sense, they have one desire to please Krishna. This is central, but it has a whole range of unlimited variety to please Krishna because he's a Kilarasamrita Sindhu. He's the taker, he's the center. He can taste unlimitedly. So Krishna has friends. Krishna has lovers, hmm? for example. And they all have desires. Some coward boys like mangoes and some like bananas. Some like them both. Hmm? And each of those desires is fully pleasing to Krishna. So there's a beta-beta equation. You're looking at it from the, from the, from the, from the abed perspective. From the abed perspective, everyone is just kind of a, a medium through which Krishna's desires are being fulfilled. Hmm? So they're like, have no will. Hmm? They're instruments, and Krishna is fulfilling his desires through these surrendered people. From the Bade perspective, the difference perspective, hmm? which is more emphasized by us because then we have Leela, Bhava, the more you emphasize the Abed perspective, there's only Krishna. Right? Hmm? The more you emphasize the, the Bade perspective, hmm? which both are operative simultaneously, then you have difference, you have Leela, and, 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 and so forth. So, from the Bait perspective, Mukta Jivas in Leela, they all have desires. Their will is now being facilitated in a way that the material nature didn't facilitate it because in the material nature, in relation to it, you may have will or desire, but again, it may not be fulfilled. In the spiritual world, you have will or desire and it will be fulfilled because the desire on its base is to please Krishna. Well, within the context of that, it may be variegated in one way or another way or another way. So every devotee in the Leela is not some automaton, hmm? but they have a full life. Their capacity to desire and have will is fully manifest. And everything about them, everything about a unit of Sakirasa, a unit of Vatsaliarasa, a unit of Madhuryarasa is completely pleasing to Krishna. And so you have a whole range of unlimited activities, desires, and so on and so forth. But again, there's a, there's a, there's a communism to the, the, the capitalism, there's a socialism to the capitalism there. Uh, in other words, the individuality, the capitalistic individuality is combined with the socialistic everyone for the pleasure of Krishna. Does that help? It's very nice, thank you. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's, it's really a, sh- it's a shifting of the landscape. Yeah. From desiring material satisfaction, desiring Krishna satisfaction, and as that landscape is shifted, then the will manifests around the center, and you move from the material into the spiritual. 
Yeah. And the material life, of course, your material desires, they never satisfy. They never satisfy. And material nature, um, if it dominates, then it's inert. So you start to become kind of robotic. And you meet people, they're kind of like robotic. They're just kind of going through their lives. And they are making choices on some level, but not like a devotee whose will is fully operative. So the Sarup Shakti illumines and the Maya Shakti obscures. So the free will is more obscured in relation to the material nature than it is in relation to the, to the uh, spiritual environment. Because it's finite in a spiritual symphony. Right. The, desire, the, the will that you have when you surrender to Krishna, now, now your will has become infinite. Yeah, it has infinite possibility, yeah. It's all-encompassing, so you mm. can't lose anything right. when you connect with Krishna. You can't. You become all that you could possibly be, right? So the jiva, let's, take the, let's separate the jiva for a minute from the material influence and from the spiritual influence. Now you have no environment. Hmm? How can it have will other than just latent? How can it be an agent of action? How can it have qualitative experiences? How can it be an apprehender? If there's nothing to apprehend, there are no qualitative experiences to be had. Hmm? There's no. How can it be? Yeah, it, this is near Rishesh. So the jiva is like separated from the Maya Shakti and the Sarup Shakti. Is something like near Rishesh Brahma, but it's really not because it's tatasta, which means it really never is in either in in, in that independent position. Hmm? It's either on one side or it's either on the other side, tatasta. It, it's either influenced by the Maya Shakti or it's influenced by the Srup Shakti. And that's why we call merging in Brahman spiritual suicide. Hmm? It's either an actual suicide, which is possible by Krishna's arrangement, or it's, in a, it's more or less, because the jiva merged in Brahman does exist and remains as, a, as an individual unit of consciousness, but it, it doesn't know that it is. Hmm? So it might as well be have, have extinguished itself. So this is very undesirable. It's more desirable from the bhak- desirable from the bhakti perspective to be functioning in the material world, where there's where and look at the difference too. Material desires are easy to overcome in relation to bhakti. The desire for mukti and merging into brahman is very difficult to overcome because it's more powerful than all the material desires put together. It has to defeat all the material desires in order to prevail and to be what it is. Mukshatva, the longing for mukti, for merging in Brahman, is such a powerful desire, again, that all the material desires put together are not as strong as it. They can't have as much of a hold on the jiva. So if someone has that strong desire, it's very difficult to make bhakti sangskar for them and, and see the power of Mahaprabhu to convert Prakashananda. You have to understand, well, that was quite a feat. Hmm? But he did. Hmm? Very difficult to do. But material desires, they don't satisfy you anyway. Hmm? What you can get from muksha is is considerable compared to the material desires. So, difficult to... to but, but if you're in the material world, then you're in a better position to take advantage of, of bhakti. And anyway, there's nobody in the Brahma Jodi moving around like, hey, Hare Krishna. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, it's a quiet place there. Nobody knows anybody's there. You know? Everybody's there, but the lights are out. You know, Nobody knows anybody else is there. Something like that. So it's it's well, the lights are on, but I mean they're just they're 
Their eyes are closed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. That's another way to look at it. You know, they're blinded by the light. They can't see anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yes. How do those on the Gyanmar interpret verses describing the partiality of Bhagavan? Well, there are different types of ideas on the Gyanmar, but let's take the you know the classical Gyanmarg, if you will, of Shankar. Hmm which we don't agree with, we don't think that what he talks about is actually possible experience. But basically, the what Shankar has done is come up with this idea, which is his insertion in the sutras, it's not in the sutras itself, that there are two tiers of Brahman. There's Brahman that's still, and then there's Brahman that manifests as Sattvaguna, hmm? the Ishwar, and then the, the imaginary world manifests, and so on and so forth. Hmm? So... All the statements about the eternality of God, the form of God, the legalism. What was your question? Partiality. Uh, well, the partiality of the devotees. They say that a Jivan Mukta can experience the partiality of Ishwar hmm, in the penultimate state, the step just before Mukti. He's liberated, waiting for the Prabhu Karma to play itself out, and he relishes the leelas and the partiality of the Ishwar, it's the highest, most subtle form of illusion that's close to enlightenment, and then he enters into Videha Mukti, into Brahman, and and the illusion that there's an Ishwar, and that there's partiality, and that there's two, and so forth, disappears. That's how they speak about it. So they take all the many, 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 many statements of the scripture, for example, that speak about the partiality of God, the, the the individuality of God, the qualities, the gunas, and they think those are all to be interpreted gonabritti in a secondary way. They're not to be taken mukibritti directly. The idea is, if I say to you, go to Prabhupada's house, he lives just a mile from here on the Ganges. So then you go, you, you, you interpret that in an indirect way, because, you know, he's not living on the Ganges. He's living on the bank of the Ganges, because you can't live on the Ganges. So so a statement like that is to be interpreted uh, secondarily or indirectly. Hmm? And so what Shankara said is all of the statements about Bhagawan, it's all, uh, eternality and the life of the devotee and Leela and the partiality, all those should be interpreted indirectly and 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 statements about oneness between Brahman and and, uh, and Atma should be taken as the Mukhivriti. And Mahaprabhu said he's got it, you know, he's got it entirely backwards. Hmm? And the, the preponderance of the of the statements about the difference are is, is considerable in comparison to the basic idea that we agree with, that we are one in a sense with God. We are a unit of consciousness, God is consciousness. We're not like matter, which is achit. Asat and Nirananda and so forth. You follow? Yeah. It's kind of a intellectual sleight of hand, if you will. Yeah. It's taking, it's putting a subjective spin on the whole bhakti cult and saying we're we're objective in our undifferentiated Brahman, but you guys are subjectively trying to approach the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's the time? <laughs>
725. Okay. So we'll stop there for tonight. Meet tomorrow. Shidamanarastakam ki jai. Guradamadava ki jai. Go Ayasi Bhakti Vidanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai. Bhakti Rakshakshida Dev Goswami Maharaj ki jai. Bhakti Sadanta Saraswati Thakur Prabhupada ki jai. Bhakti Vinod Paribar ki jai. Gaur Bhakti Vrinda ki jai. Gaur Premanandi.